Hey, Michael here. Uh, welcome to this week's episode of the Michael Gridley Show. I uh, had a really cool guest this week, and we talked a lot about a bunch of different subjects. Uh, Megan Scornia is her name. Uh, she actually relocated to San Antonio a couple years ago uh, from Austin, originally from St. Louis, uh, and she goes into a lot of her background. We talked about a bunch of cool stuff. Um, believe it or not, there is a bar in San Antonio where uh, people who left Austin go to commiserate uh, their former city. Uh, the new 100-mile bike and hike trail that goes from uh, from San Antonio uh, to Austin that they're working on, uh, as well as a bunch of different urban planning, urban development, uh, life and philosophy stuff. So really enjoyed it. Excited to share with you kind of Megan's uh, perspective on stuff. I learned a lot, uh, and I'm uh, personally excited to share this one with you. So thanks so much. Uh, Megan, thanks for being here. I'm really excited for chatting with you today. Maybe a good place to get started. Like, uh, tell me how you ended up being in San Antonio and kind of doing what you do. Like, I'm, I'm I'm excited to hear about that. Cool. Thanks, Michael. Excited to be here today. Um, so my name is Megan Scornia. I am an urban planning consultant um, currently based in San Antonio, Texas. Um, how we got to San Antonio, it's kind of a, uh, classic millennial story of being priced out of Austin, Texas. Um, so we, um, I'm an urban planner. You, to, to get that, to, to get that job, you, um, just go to school and get an urban planning degree. So, um, we moved here in 2014, um, here being to central Texas area, um, uh, moved to Austin where I worked for a consulting firm that write zoning codes, um, form-based codes, things like that for different communities. Um, I was with them for a little bit and then switched over to where I'm at now, which is Asakura Robinson. Um, lived in Austin. And then um, how I ended up in San Antonio, I guess kind of towards the end of the end of the, the scary part of the pandemic, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so September, October 2020, um, we, we had a big life change. Um, you know, a dog, a dog of ours died. Um, our rent was going up. Our affordability, affordability, possibility of buying a house in Austin was just slipping through our fingers. Um, so we just decided, you know, first off, we're going to take kind of a road trip. Um, you know, drove up and down California, spent a couple months doing that, put everything in storage. Um, but then decided that we needed basically to build some equity. Um, we kind of had added up how much we'd spent on rent in the past, you know, the eight years of living in Austin. It was very painful. Um, but we we wanted to keep our connections. We wanted to still be able to see our friends. Um, I wanted to keep my business connections. Um, we, we weren't really ready to leave Texas. Um, Abbott had not um, put in place his draconian abortion law yet, although I... Frankly, that would have been a major changer for us and still is. So I don't know if we would have ended up quite the same. Um, but we're here in San Antonio. We bought a house in Dignity Hill in April of last year. So um, actually a year ago. So yeah, I've been here a year. And um, it's, great. it's been great. Yeah. And you're uh, a mom now. I am a mom. Um, I had my son in November of last year, um, my first son. And so that um, experiencing kind of birth, pregnancy, postpartum, um, and a woman as a woman in this country has been pretty radicalizing. Um, I I don't fully, I haven't been able to fully digest what it means for me in my life yet, because I think it means a lot. Um, it's just, it's, it's been a whirlwind, but my son is amazing. His name's Holden, as everyone says. Um, 
he's just super cute and chill and very much what we needed. That's awesome. That's awesome. And where where is your partner slash husband from? Is it from he's from San Francisco? Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, my husband is he's from Nashville. Um we met when we were in architecture school. Um I was a grad student, he was an undergrad. Um met there and then um we lived in Nashville for a little bit and then um moved to Austin for my job. And he's in carpentry, furniture, fabrication remodeling, um, kind of that whole world. Yeah. Super interesting. Well, one of the things you touched on, and we don't have to go deep in this if you don't want to, but like, like I've been fascinated by watching kind of like the process of like what it becoming a mom, like change to like thinking. And you kind of talked about that. Like it made you like, I think the word used was radicalized. So like what like, can you describe more like what's happening? And we could talk about something else you want, like yeah. bus routes or whatever, but no, like, no, it's, su- it's super curious. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of crazy because, um, you know, you go your whole life trying to prevent a pregnancy, especially as a woman, you know, the mm-hmm. onus is on us really to do a lot of the prevention and make sure the prevention's happening. Um, and then you start not preventing. And, you know, we were really, really lucky. I know we're very lucky. Um, got pregnant very immediately. Um, so, you know, you kind of think that's it. And you're like, okay, well, I've done it and now I wait. Um, but really just going through everything that can happen in a pregnancy is really intense. Um, for example, like um, some of the genetic testing that comes up, you know, it comes up um, midway through the pregnancy. Um, and luckily, you know, my, my son is totally fine. We did have a, a minor scare where there was a moment where we thought in order to protect him, um, we might need an out of state abortion or something like that. Um, and it was just really the, the most like intensely bad I've ever felt was knowing that like, there might be something wrong with him. And I couldn't get care from my normal providers um, here in Texas. So that was pretty radicalizing. Um, I mean, and then just going through, um, I'm in this really cool thing. It's really cool. It's through Reddit, um, you know, but it's these bumper groups. And what they do is they place you in these groups with people who are giving birth in the same month as you worldwide. Hmm. So there's about, you know, 2000 people in this chat and we're chatting about what we're going through. We're all giving birth in November and really just seeing how literally all the other developed countries were people were able to take off of work for their pregnancy. Um, Whereas I was working, laying down, throwing up um, really poor mental health, like just through these really awful situations in the United States, um, that was, that was kind of really intense. And I, I don't know, you know, they say comparison is the thief of joy. You know, I know things are better in women, for Europe and er, for women in Europe, places like that, but really just seeing it firsthand as women who were pregnant at the same time as me, um, was really, really intense. And, I'm lucky I work for a very women-friendly company. I'm very senior there. Um, so, you know, I had the flexibility that that they could give me and that I needed, but it was just really intense to know that um, we can do better and we're just not. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, super interesting. Well, yeah, you. so you talked about the ideas of like well, the most recent like abortion bill that we had passed here in Texas. Mm-hmm. like. 
like, I guess it's so confusing to me. <laughs> like, I'm so confused. Like, why? I don't understand. I don't understand why we're doing that unless it's like, it feels like we should be worrying about more important stuff. But anyway. Uh, so, yeah. But, and I try to, I try to think about it from like a view. I'm like, why do we want potential you know, like I'm trying to think, I'm like, is this some sort of like, we need to have workers thing, you know, like why are, why are we yeah. doing this? And I haven't been able to figure that out. So let me know if you do. <laughs> uh, I, I will quote another person who I happen to spend a lot of time with, but shall remain anonymous, but said person says it's actually um, quietly a war against uh, women. So like it's designed to yeah. subjugate, especially uh, women of you know, certain social strata, certain colors, that sort of stuff. Like, you know, yeah. I think somebody like yourself is in a situation where a law like that uh, isn't as devastating um, to your potential options and to your ability to live a balanced and best life. But I think that the sure. argument is that it's, you know, to some extent, a pretty, pretty aggressive thing against the poor you know, the under-resourced and stuff like that. That's, that is one person's, that is one person's interpretation of it. Um, which the corollary to that is it also drives this person crazy when, when she, he sees, uh, women signing up, like, this is a great thing for women. It's a terrible thing for women because it reduces options, um, and, and the ability to kind of control what's going to happen with your body and your life. So, um, that's totally. that. That is one opinion I I have heard. That makes, I, don't, hey, I don't know. That's one. That's that's a valid one. I, I, I that makes sense to me. Yeah. So so you talked about leaving Austin. I and something you tweeted about is there's a bar in San Antonio where all the former Austinites go to be sad about leaving Austin. <laughs> First of all, like how dare you be sad about moving to San Antonio? But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I felt sad when I moved here too. So it's yeah. It, we we. We we moved here in 2003, and I felt like it really took me almost a decade to feel like I was really part of the community and I had found my place. Like I was, I was almost a. Yeah. There was a juncture where I was like, "We're either moving to Southtown, um, which at the time was kind of the Dignity Hill of San Antonio, yeah. uh, or we are, uh, or we're moving someplace else, going back to California." Uh, and we moved to Southtown, and yep. it, it turned out great. But uh, so anyway, I, I'm giving you some some beef about that. But um, what uh, what where is this I, bar I that it. all the sa- where do all the sad Austinites go, and uh, why is it Olive Garden? Um. <laughs> so so I will say, you know, this is a locally owned bar by some wonderful San Antonians um, with yep. a lot of really cool San Antonio specific things. I just have happened to see a lot of sad Austinites there. Um, and I, I had my uh, a sibling of mine in town this weekend who is lives in Dallas, but you know knows Austin well, and he correlated my feelings on that. But the bar is Pink Hill. Um, right there on Broadway. Um, and so they're just, you know, it has an Austin vibe. Um, a lot of people there look like they just came right down from Austin. And I feel like whenever I'm there, I end up having a conversation with someone that basically goes along the lines of, you know, we're really, really lucky to have had options. Um, a lot of people, you know, in Austin do not. Um, and we're financially better off for moving down here, but, um, we miss it a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> pink hill. <laughs> yeah, I totally dig it. Now, the funny thing is I spend, you know, you're talking about this bar right on Broadway in kind of the central urban core, if you call it urban of San Antonio. I spend probably 
two hours every day within a hundred yards here because my gym is right here. I had no idea there was a bar here. Oh, nice. Like, where, where's, where's this? The, yes. But, yeah, by the way, it's great. This may be the most Austin part of it is like, why don't you put a sign out front? Like, I, can't, I, can't, I want to go to the bar, but you got to put a sign out front. <laughs> they put a blinky one out like when they're open. Um, yeah. But it is a really wonderful place. Highly recommended. Um, you know, we take our baby there, but they have a lot of, you know, this is San Antonio, so we can't have an event without there being a market, right? So there's always yeah. a lot of markets going on, um, you know, a lot of food pop-ups. Yeah, it's a great little shop. Totally dig it. So what one thing I noticed about your your work um, and they on your bio for for stuff, they asked you where you could work on a project anywhere in the world, and you listed Mexico City and Hong Kong. So I mean, I was yes. just curious, like what. What makes for an urban planner, like, and I'm the opposite of an urban planner, like I'm an urban consumer, uh, like what makes like a canvas, like something like that, like so interesting compared to like, like to me, like the greatest urban planning challenge would be like Corpus Christi. Like, I, and if you've never, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've been to Corpus yeah. Christi, it's not that nice. Uh, I have no listeners in Corpus Christi, by the way, because I poop on Corpus Christi a lot. But like, like what is so appealing about like, you know, someplace like Mexico City or Hong Kong for the type of work you do. Like, I just, I guess I didn't, I want to understand what's the rationale and thinking there. Yeah, well, kind of too. Um, so when you're an urban planner, you know, urban planning has a long history of doing some really messed up things to minority communities, um, you know, yeah. entire highway system. Let's start. Um, so cultural competency is a really important thing for us. And so what that means is when we come into a community, if, if it's a community that I'm not a part of, you know, for example, it's a black community, something like that, um, we'll really try to kind of take a step back and work with, you know, for that example, a black firm or a higher black community members to really be the face of this project and be the drivers of this project. And so for me in Mexico City, like just knowing that I would have that approach to the project where it's not like me, the designer walking into Mexico City, where it's me finding um, some cool, interesting Mexican firms and like lending support and learning from them. That's what really um, drove me to kind of say that about Mexico City. Um, I mean, I'm just really fascinated by it. It's so close, been there a lot. It's like a totally different world. So just learning from people about the forces that shape that city that live it day in and day out, I think would be really interesting to me. And then my response about Hong Kong um, was just, what's really interesting there is, you know, in America, we trend, we tend to work on the, the X axis, you know, it's the land and the buildings out as far as you can see. Whereas, you know, in Hong Kong, they work so much more on the y-axis, y-axis. Like, I just remember going there and being shocked and shocked to see commercial up at three, four, five, six stories. Whereas in the United States, you know, commercial is ground level. That's it because it just people aren't used to, I guess, buying things they can't see or going in places yeah. they can't see. Um, so that was just really fascinating to me. And then add in the topography of Hong Kong, um, the complex geopolitical situation. It just seems like one of those projects that might be all consuming, but would be super, super interesting. So, Yeah. Well, I think, so I've been to both of those cities because, you know, I'm a world traveler and stuff, but um, also actually my wife and I love to travel. <laughs> so it's, it's true. Nice. Um, but like the, the thing that surprised, will surprise people about Hong Kong, which I always kind of think about it as like Asia light. It's like, if you want to like, 
if you, it's like a light yes. beer. If you're going to go to Asia, it's like, oh, like you can get around pretty well. Um, and I remember once being like in a taxi there and the taxi driver didn't speak English. He just spoke Cantonese. And uh, he called his daughter to like translate for us, uh, which was like super entertaining, like okay. driving around Hong Kong. But I think the thing that su- would surprise people right. about Hong Kong, they know how dense it is, but like how much the policies have affected how like such a low percentage of the actual buildable land is actually built on. Like they have all that land that because the government is doling it out a little bit at a time to preserve their revenue stream, like they actually haven't developed, even though some parts of it like go up like 80 stories right into these massive housing projects to, to have people. So I always, I always found that to be a fascinating example of how like the economics of how a government gets funded can totally affect like the housing sure. market and how development happens. Absolutely. And I mean, just the amount of green space there um, is pretty incredible. And I mean, it's just really fascinating to see, um, especially, you know, I grew up in your typical kind of middle class privileged suburban lifestyle, just to see the ways in which people live and are totally fine. It's been it's been really freeing for me because I feel like the suburbs do just put such a such an intense pressure on like, um, outward facades and things like that. So to really see other people living in, you know, I don't want to quote Le Corbusier on here, but like machines for living, like they're actually using their house to live. They're not using it as a facade to show how rich or Christian they are, I think is like really, really interesting. Yeah, totally dig it. Well, and then you see that same thing happening in Hong Kong. The other fascinating thing they do is because you can't use your house as a showpiece for your wealth or for your values like you can in, in America um, or even Japan or other places like that, they do it with their cars. Like So they all buy these like ridiculous vehicles and then they get custom license plates on it. So if you're ever interested in it, go on, like, uh, go on the web or YouTube and there'll be like channels that focus like on the cars and then the creative custom license plates that everybody gets to go with these like ridiculous yellow Lambos and stuff nice. like that. Like it's, it's totally fascinating uh, as, as, as an opportunity to kind of see how the other half like, like watches that, like that human instinct to kind of show off and peacock on things. But because you can't peacock a certain way, they start peacocking a whole other way. Like the human urge is, is unstoppable sure. uh, in terms of that. Yeah, um, so I guess the lesson is just you're going to express that in some way, no matter what. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, men are going to do men things. I, being one, I will tell you that's how it works. <laughs> like, we just do men things. They um, are. <laughs> so the other, the other thing that I think Texans in general, like, like we had a, a thing happen recently. So we've, we go, I go to a gym. Uh, over by the bar, actually. And there's a young guy there. He's, mm-hmm. He comes to the gym all the time. He hangs out with us. We go get coffee afterwards. And we found out for spring break, he was going to do... What, well, let me ask you, what would be the most boring thing you could imagine a 21-year-old guy, healthy and virile, doing for his senior year of spring break? What would be the most boring thing you could imagine? Iowa? I don't know. Missouri? I'm from Missouri, Close. so I can say that. <laughs> Close. He was going to the northern suburbs of Houston to play golf for a week. That's what he was going to do. And me, oh, me and my other no. middle-aged guy buddies found out, by himself, by the way, not with anybody else, me and my other middle-aged buddies found out about this, and literally for weeks we we harangued him until he agreed to go to Mexico City for the week and go stay in a great. hostel and just have a great time. Great. And it all went great Good. until until after spring break, he comes back and we say, dude, how was Mexico City? Like, amazing. Metropolis of the world. How was it? And he said, I didn't go. 
And uh, we said, what happened? His mom found out that he was going to go to Mexico City, freaked out about all the PR and refused to give him his passport. So he went to the world's most oh, second boring my. thing. He went to Vegas with a bunch of 20-year-old dudes. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. so I mean, that's the thing that kind of oh, drives me nuts about Mexico City is number one, people don't realize if you're in South Texas, like if you want to get out of the heat for the summer, the smartest thing to do is actually get on a plane and fly an hour and a half south to Mexico City. And the weather's yep. wonderful because they're at such high altitude. Um, and then the second thing is just how much people have taken the kind of scare tactics in the in the media and like not gone to places like Guadalajara or Mexico City um, or some of these sure. other kind of San Miguel de Allende, like some of these just beautiful places um, that are so culturally rich and the people are great. And like, yeah, you, you shouldn't do stupid stuff to get yourself in trouble. But like, it's just such a a missing opportunity for so many people. So anyway, that's just my soapbox about it Mexico really, City. It like really it's great. Is. That's funny and because the first time I went, I was quite a bit younger. And yeah, my my mom was the same thing. She was very concerned, very, very concerned. Um, but I mean, I will say I I felt very safe the whole time we were in Mexico City, every time we've gone. Um and I and I feel regularly feel unsafe on the streets of San Antonio. So <laughs> yeah. So we talked about that. I went to lunch with some work colleagues. Why do you think people yeah. feel unsafe on the streets of San Antonio or any American city? But I don't think I don't think San Antonio yeah. is that different from other places unless you disagree. Like what what do you think is different? Why do why do people feel unsafe? Why do you feel unsafe? Yeah. Um for me it's kind of a constant battle between and so just a little bit about me. We have one vehicle in my family. Um it's mostly what my husband takes to work. It's a medium-sized truck. Um, so, you know, during the day, most of the time I uh, walk and I take the bus and that's pretty by choice, you know, um, if we needed another car, we could get one. But it's just, um, it's, so I almost feel like with my job, I know too much. Um, I know, you know, there are these horrific of depreciating assets, not to mention the environmental cost, you know, the cost on the modern family. I know how unsafe vehicles are. Like it's this massive amount of death we just accept every single year as like the way it has to be, but it doesn't. Um, so I'm really coming at, you know, the streets being unsafe from a pedestrian perspective. So really it's, I mean, to me, I see two things. I see like the physical infrastructure. We just don't have, you know, enough crosswalks, lighting, sidewalks, mm -hmm. things like that. And then, I mean, the other one is um, from a street harassment perspective, um, I'm like constantly torn between walking down a street that is busier but I know I'm going to be told some really messed up, awful things from speeding trucks or a street that's less busy, but I'm a little bit worried about safety because there's not as many eyes on the street. Um, especially where I live in Dignity Hill, the dogs are a major issue. Um, that's my really only beef with my neighborhood. And it's a big one is, is the dog situation is pretty shocking for an American city of this size. Um, but yeah, th those are kind of the two forces I see at work with why are the streets unsafe? Just really this auto dependence is a big one. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying it's actually a lot of the safety. Well, it sounds like there's vehicles and then there's crazy drivers and then there's some animals. <laughs> that, yeah, and then there's that combines like infrastructure with, and then there's like yeah. society. And I mean, um, yeah, the street harassment thing, it's, it's you know, it's it didn't bother me. I mean, it bothered me a lot um, early on and then it didn't bother me. And then it bothered me a lot while I was pregnant. 
to be getting yeah. the amount of street harassment was was pretty messed up. Um, it bothers me so now they, when I'm out with my like son. Is it like dudes like yelling at sexual yeah. stuff? Is that yeah? It's oh, um. Yeah, it is sexual stuff. Um, if you want to look up, I used to run an account called ATX Street Harassment um, when I lived in Austin. Um, it is since I'm not doing it anymore. But yeah, it's just um, mostly sexual stuff, vast majority from white men in trucks. So um, that's just the way it is. I mean, like women's bodies are seen as like out there for the taking. So yeah, um, yeah sexual stuff, threatening stuff. Um, gestures you know on sometimes it'll be like a, a flash of a certain male body part um you know pulling over in the car that kind of stuff so yeah it's kind of a bummer <laughs> yeah it's really interesting and you're i mean i saw you tweeted you take the bus a lot too right or you try to when it mm-hmm. sounds like it's not that reliable i don't i don't take the bus <laughs> i pulled up. i used to take it when yeah, i lived in San Francisco. It, i don't hear it works when it works yeah. Yeah, it works when it works and like um you know the thing about transit funding you know is a lot of the funding comes from ridership numbers so it's like a mm-hmm. chicken or the egg situation. You know, I mean everyone who I'm sure works at VIA which is our transit agency here um you know is very qualified and know what works well. It's just you know the funding and the um kind of the buy-in from the community is just it's not quite there especially in Texas where, you know, having this vehicle is such a sign of like who you are and what you do and everything like that. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's, well, do you think it's shifting more that, you know, your generation, especially, and I think we covered in the pre-show, you're millennial and I'm Gen X. So you could, you're welcome to say, okay, boomer to me, whatever you want. By the way, I've studied generational (laughs) stuff lately and, uh, like the number a number one driver for and a number one fear for uh boomers is they fear a loss of relevance like they're terrified about it um and and that the big problem with okay boomer for them and why it's so insulting is it's totally implies like oh you're irrelevant i don't care about what you think and that's just like that's why like every baby boomer you talk to who's heard that okay boomer thing is like like it makes their head explode so anyway coming soon to a twitter thread near you will be like yeah do not say okay boomer to boomers (laughs) do you know another thing that i just realized um will is very dangerous to say to a boomer is to you know so this is a generation who's really had you know everything they want when they want it um hyper hyper independence from this generation and Telling them that there is a time imminently that, that they won't be able to drive. And then the fact that they're all living in living in these communities that are set up literally only for driving. Like, I mean, if you tell a boomer that they're not going to be able to drive forever, it, it's liable to get you killed. Um, but it is that's just that's kind of a big, big urban planning problem that is facing this generation is that they, you know, are all living in these auto centric communities and auto driving an auto is, is not for everyone and most especially not some elderly people. So that's going to be a big one. So, so what do we do about that? Are we just screw? Is it just going to be Mad question. Max for about I mean, a 20 year period? It might be. Um, I mean, we build communities for walkability, you know, we build, it's funny because I think about in San Antonio, I think I tweeted this, but, 
I'm like, has anybody told everyone that we can have a pearl in every neighborhood? Yeah. You know, like a mixed use walkable center with apartments and shops, literally in every neighborhood if we just change the zoning. And like, I don't know if I don't know if no one's been that direct with people or if, you know, the other sides are coming around saying, oh, apartments, there's gonna be poor people, it's gonna be awful, you know, all the normal, the normal kind of arguments. But um, I mean, it's it really all comes down to the land development code. I mean, especially in places, you know, in San Antonio and in Austin, Central Texas, Texas as a whole, United States as a whole right now. I mean, development money is there and ready to build. It's just, you know, we're, we're slowing it down with our development codes. Our development codes are racist and anti-women and anti-pedestrian and anti-poor and, you know, a large variety of things. It's just kind of changing these codes that is arduous. Yeah. Well, I mean, is it, is it still kind of done like they do the national fire code and building code? Like there's a, a, nationally there's IFC, IBC. I haven't done this in like five years. So if I'm talking about stuff like you, this is the okay boomer moment, your uncle was it. But is it, is it the case that there's still kind of these national things that everybody just kind of says, okay, well, here's the, here's the UCC or whatever it's going to be in terms of our code. And and we're going to adopt this and we're going to modify it a little bit. Is that, is that the core of the problem of, or, or is there something, is there another way that these local building codes get set up? Well, so we're talking about, development code. So building okay. building codes are like what you're saying, you know, make sure that like the wall is not flammable, stuff like that. Right. Um, that's a building code. A zoning code is more like what uses and what form and shapes, height, you know, buildings you can put in different places. Um, and those are actually, unfortunately, usually developed at the municipal level. And unfortunately, they're also usually developed with a significant amount of public input. And you think that sounds good, but the way we set up our public input over the years is to favor white landowners. So all of the policies that are set out of these engagement sessions on the land development codes favors these landowners. Hmm. So, I mean, this is really everything from asking for input that like requires a computer and an internet connection, which is a privilege, Um, asking for input at a meeting at six o'clock that doesn't have food or childcare, like only so many people can make that. Um, so there's, you know, things that have just excluded people from this process, you know, and then, I mean, going back even further, we're talking about, you know, actual red lighting, actual deed restrictions that say, you know, African-Americans cannot live in this home. Really, it's just been like a layering of these oppressive systems um, and they all are locally developed. Um, for each city. And like, for example, you know, if you go out into the county, um, you know, I'm talking more rural situations, but like counties don't have zoning codes and things like that. So it's, it's mostly the cities that you're seeing that are developing these driving these and restricting this kind of flow of development. Yeah. What is this? Is this one of the situations where, you know, San Antonio is kind of a rarity in Texas, where it's this big, single amoeba city compared to Austin, you know, let's say Dallas, Dallas is a great example, right? Where you have Dallas city limits itself and Dallas city government is relatively small. And then you end up having this total fragmentation of the governments around the rest of kind of, especially North Dallas and even South, right? You have Hutchins, Little Elm, Waxahachie, all these different cities up there. And they each get to kind of not screw up their zoning codes. Is this, I mean, is this one of the situations where 
you know, kind of the Austin and San Antonio model where we have this one giant city that does most of our urban zoning. Like, are we getting hurt by that? Is that, is that how you would think about it? Or is it better to have the more kind of fragmented either Houston or Dallas model where they have a bunch of little municipalities? Um, that's a good question. In, so, I mean, in Texas, a lot of times, like, you know, let, let's look at Alamo Heights, for example. Um, you know, that I was live really there. Let's formed don't. because, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, Alamo Heights is its own city and I, yeah. and a lot of these, you know, you'll see these kind of wealthy enclaves that want to become their own municipality. Um, and that's, that's really so that they can have control over their own rules and, you know, make rules that make sense for their tax base. Is that, has that specifically been used over time as a tool for segregation? Absolutely, it has. Um, is there anything inherently wrong with doing that? If, you know, if it works for your community? I don't necessarily think so. I just think it's the way it's been used in America has been very, very exclusive. And that said, I will say, like, just from a delivery of services, delivery of infrastructure perspective, like Alamo Heights, if you, if it was not as wealthy as it is, they would have a lot of hard hardship funding, you know, infrastructure, roads, streets, services, things like that. And so a good example of where this can be a problem, I think, um, comes from actually where I'm from in St. Louis. And so there, the city and the county are separated. And, you know, through decades and decades of racist zoning policies, um, white flight, things like that, a vast, vast majority of the wealth lives out in the county, pays taxes to St. Louis County, and is very against a merger of the city and the county. And the city of St. Louis, where, you know, the people who have the means drive in once a week for a Cardinals game and then drive right back out, the city is struggling, struggling, struggling. Um, And so, you know, losing population by the tens of thousands every year. And so while the idea is not inherently bad, I think you can see by my examples, it's just really been used as a very bad tool. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know, San Antonio, Alamo Heights is like the kind of in the one inner city. Well, it's one of three little, little inner cities that we have that are their own little cities. And they're like, well, it's where I grew up. It's like where the privilege grew up. So (laughs) being a privileged person, I'm Mm -hmm. not afraid to admit where I'm from. Um, Yes. Yes, yes, definitely. It's really interesting. You know, you, you talked about this problem where you end up with governments almost always like the fundamental problem is they don't they don't think they don't think about and aren't optimized for the residents they should be trying to bring in you know they end up optimizing for protecting the interest of the existing folks and that could be bad for everybody you know and, and i think that's kind of if people yeah. ask kind of what my my challenge is for san antonio is like we keep optimizing more and more for parents uh people below the poverty line like we do we do a lot for that for car lovers uh for retirees and for military people but people that want to live like sure. the life that you were living prior to kind of becoming a parent i'm just i'm being totally presumptive that that has changed your life radically but the people who want to live that oh, life yes. <laughs> like be mobile be, live on a bike not own a car like you know work in you know high growth kind of environments like san antonio has just for decades, just decided not to do anything to try to retain or attract those people. Um, and it's proven like, it's pretty challenging for me. Like I don't try to recruit 
under 30 single people to San Antonio anymore because I know I can't keep them here. Like they never stay. But if somebody's like a parent, they'll totally stay. They think this place is great, (laughs) which which it is. Well, and like, yeah. And that's what, you know, we were, we were up the road living in, you know, 490 square feet in the middle of the city and wanting to have a kid. And, you know, it just wasn't going to pencil, but you know, San Antonio was a good place for us where we can park it for a few years, get relatively affordable childcare, grow some equity, you know, things like that. So I totally agree. I have a good friend of mine who is in the low 30s dating pool and she is struggling. So I understand um, where where you're coming from. Yeah. Oh, she's here in San Antonio? Yes, she is. So yeah, yeah. Totally <laughs> Nobody different. wants into my way, but she's... <laughs> Uh, I mean, the funny thing is I know a lot of desirable 30-something single women in San Antonio, much fewer men. So it's it's a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's one of those things where people were like, you know, I got, I get, used to get invited to like the, hey, come on and we're going to talk about how to fix the community meetings. I don't go to those anymore, by the way. (laughs) Like, this is me. I just keep my blinders on. Um, But they would, they would be like, what do you mean you can't keep? 20 somethings here who are single. I was like, open up Tinder. Go ahead. Yeah. Open up Tinder. Sign up for an account. Come back in a half an hour. Yeah. Let me know. And then go pick another yeah. any anywhere else. Go anywhere else. Go Dallas, Houston, Waco. I don't care. Just compare their tender to our tender and let me know if you still want to stay here. Let me know. And yeah, like and the, it's unfortunate. And like, you know, I feel like a lot of, you know, and I'm 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 saying what she tells me and a few other single friends, but seems like a lot of what's left are, you know, unfortunately men who maybe haven't been to therapy yet. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not an unfixable problem, but it's just, they just, they need a little work. And at this point, you know, a lot of us, I mean, I, I'm lucky that, you know, I'm married to a great man who does a lot of inner work on himself, but like a lot of men, it's just kind of, it's just been so long that they, that they've been set in these ways. And, um, you know, and, and like we, as women, we've, we've been dating so long, you know, and like dealing with all this men BS that like the thought of then trying to date one and convince them to go to therapy. It's just like, it's, it's like, uh, I'd rather stay home. (laughs) So (laughs) that's kind of, I think that's kind of the general feeling. (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, look, I'm not an expert in this. I've been married for however many twenty years. Like, I when I when I was dating, like they still people still put out personal ads in the newspaper. That's how long ago like oh, I was that's dating. Real, see, that seems really classic and nice. <laughs> um, I did put a I did put a personal ad in a San Francisco newspaper once when I was there, and um, I put it in the men seeking women stuff because I was like, well, let's just try it. What could go wrong? And uh, sure. all I got were phone messages from men. Like just hundreds of them. <laughs> I was like, "This is not working. This is not, not San working. Francisco for you." <laughs> uh, yes, yes. That I mean, that's that's uh, San Francisco is a not a great place to be a straight single person, especially a straight single man. Like it's pretty rough. So, in in retrospect, New York and other places have better dating options. Um, which, by the yeah. way, the last two the last two young men I recruited here. Guess where they're moving this weekend? Like they moved to Austin first, and they're like, "Yeah, we we want to go see the bigger world," and they're going to New York. It's like, well, yeah, can't really blame them. That sounds really smart. I'll come visit, and I will be in bed by ten because I'm not getting in trouble. <laughs> That's just the way it's supposed yes, to work. Exactly. <laughs> uh, 
Super cool. Well, I mean, you know, I think it's I think it's so admirable like that you've moved here despite not really having family here. And I can tell you actually care about San Antonio. So thank you. Uh, thank you for caring about San Antonio. It's it's super admirable. And, you know, I think the temptation when two people that care about a place like we seem to is you can get into some very negative stuff. So I just want to say like San Antonio has got more positives sure. than negatives as far as I'm concerned. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. San Antonio, yes, it has issues. You know, we've talked, we touched on a few of them, but you can, I will say that, you know, you said that not having family here and that's something that um, we're just really lucky to have been like embraced by a couple really good friends here. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people, like you say, are just shocked that we're down here with a kid without family because it is such a big family culture. Whereas, you know, we've been on our own forever. We're fine. We kind of like it. Um, but you know, I mean, just the welcoming of the city has been really incredible. The cultural richness. I mean, like I said, and I think my tweet, I was like, I cannot believe I've been sitting up there in Austin for this whole time, not knowing this super complex, rich culture that exists in San Antonio. So it is definitely on the up and up and the energy is on the way. So. Yeah. Well, I actually, in my prep for today's chat, I quoted that. So you, thank you for knocking that one out for me. I was like, oh, that's Good. great. <laughs> Good. Um, so I do want to talk about something fun, and maybe you don't know anything about this, but you retweeted that there's this Great Springs project that's going from Austin to yeah. San Antonio. So for yeah. those of you listening on the internet or whatever, like the two cities are like 80 miles apart. So they're kind of like Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, with with Twin Cities kind of in that that nature, except Dallas and Fort Worth are much closer. They're like 35, 40 miles apart, and we're like almost mm-hmm. almost 80. So they're building this 100-mile nonstop trail from San Antonio to Austin. So I'm excited about this. I know it's not going to be ready for like a decade. Hopefully, I'll still be alive when it's done. But what do you know anything about it? Yeah, I do. So um, a lot of... My colleagues um, over the years have worked on this project. Um, The new plan was just a release, which kind of shows the routing, which is super exciting. Um, Going back to like kind of how this came to be is really interesting. So I don't know if you've ever um, like turned off all the labels on a Google map on a satellite and just zoomed out. if you if you look, you can kind of see the edge of where that Balcones escarpment kind of comes up like a curve from San Antonio to Austin there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, all of the springs that come out of it are beloved springs, you know, San Pedro down here in San Antonio, Barton and Austin, Comal, San Marcos, all of those. Um, so what's really interesting is like, you know, your first thought is then you turn the labels back on and you're like, well, why did they build a highway on top of this incredibly environmentally sensitive area? Um, and it's because, you know, this is the path that people have used for years and that was a country road and then it was an interstate and, you know, you know how it goes, but I'm really excited about it because I feel like we're getting back to that classic use of that escarpment kind of move, um, geologically. And we're just, you know, really highlighting those springs. And then, you know, I have a fantasy where one day the interstates are no more and we're all riding on trains, um, you know, I take the train to Austin quite a bit and you go right along that path and you go over all of these beautiful swimming holes um, and springs. So I'm really excited about it. Any any other mode besides a car I get pumped about. Um, I think it's also one of the few places where in this state, conservative people and liberal people can really find some common ground. Um, is it perfect? Is it a match made in heaven? No, but I think in a lot of ways, as we drift further and further apart, 
it is one of those core values that is important to focus on. Um, so I think it's a great project, has a lot, lot of, a lot of potential. Yeah, dig it. Well, actually, so part of, you know, I mountain bike a lot. So one of the local parks, McAllister Park here, okay. I think they're going to take part. It's going to start, actually, it looks like right somewhere in there, um, right near my house. So I could actually like bike from my house to this park to Austin, cool. assuming 100 miles. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're going to, hopefully they start paving it. That does sound really awesome. Um, yeah, I'd love to do a through hike and then, you know, take the train back or something like, um, it's just, it's such a beautiful area. And, and like I said, you know, seeing it from a train, I would encourage everybody to do that. Um, if you haven't, it's, it's quite nice. So tell me, tell me about taking the train from San Antonio to Austin. Is yeah. it, is it fun? Yeah. Like how does it, what's the pluses it and minuses? So, um, in the United States, Amtrak, for the most part, has to share rail, and especially in Texas, has to share physical infrastructure with freight. Um, so, unfortunately, that means, as anyone who's taken Amtrak knows, delays, delays, delays. But because the line originates here in San Antonio and heads north, if you take it from San Antonio to Austin, it's almost always on time. Taking it back down the other way from Austin to San Antonio, that line originates in St. Louis. So it's often delayed by like five, seven, 12 hours, like a bonkers amount. Wow. So what I do is like for work, I have a, I'm working on Project Connect pretty heavily um, and have other work in Austin. So normally I'll take the 7 a.m. Um, out of San Antonio. I live right by the station, which is super convenient. Um, take it north. It takes about an hour and a half, you know, um, catch up on email, sleep, whatever you need to do. Um, get off in downtown, downtown Austin about nine, nine 30. Um, and then normally to get back then in that case, I'll either take, um, a mega bus if it's a good timing or I'll take hitch, which is kind of like Uber, but between cities. Um, so, you know, you're piecing together a few things, but it's just really beautiful. It's such a relaxing ride. You see all the springs and then the view coming into downtown Austin over the river is just like none other. It's gorgeous. So, uh, so I took Megabus and like the last couple times I did it, like the uh, air conditioner didn't work. Like we took it to Houston once and like, Ugh, I was just yeah. like, uh, uh, this is the worst. I'm going to nope. go full baby boomer and just drive myself. <laughs> so, well, and this uh, is the plug because Vaughn Lane is amazing. And that's like a business class bus. Um, but they do not run Austin to San Antonio, despite right. my incessant begging. So if if you want to beg them too, I would very much appreciate it. <laughs> Actually, when I was spending a lot more time up in Austin, which by the way, I decided like, hey, like I haven't been to Austin probably in three years, just because I decided I don't want to go oh, wow. there anymore. <laughs> like I just don't like it. I don't I I would rather fly to LA than, you know, go to Austin. Um but, or I spend more time in Dallas, frankly. So but um one of the business ideas I wanted to do was actually before uh, before any of the bus services came along, I wanted to start like a, a shuttle bus that ran from Geekdom, where you are, downtown San Antonio, out to 1604 and 35. So the Live Oak Mall, Live Oak, yeah. And then then stop on South Congress and then uh, at the Capitol. And uh, it just got bucketed to the ideas of like things I never really... <laughs> projects I didn't really want to work on because I didn't want to go to Austin as much anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so super I cool. So um, one thing you've talked about, like, uh, and, and it's in your kind of bio stuff, like 
you, you talk about people understanding the reality of our housing crisis. So like what, what sort of things yeah. is wrong are wrong or misconceptions like in the common narrative? Like how, how, how are people talking about the housing crisis? I mean, I hear about the affordability crisis and stuff, but like what aspects of that do people typically get wrong, you know, from your perspective as an urban planner? Yeah. Um, I mean, and this is a big one, like the idea that stopping development in your neighborhood will keep prices stable. Yeah. Um, it's just, I mean, economically not going to happen in the United States. Um, so why do they think that? Like, this is the, this is like typical California <laughs> like, stuff, right? <laughs> like, do I they mean, not teach economics? Stuff, and supply really? demand? And it's crazy because, you know, I see people who are fully millennial, you know, my generation, card carrying millennials, and they, you know, are the same way. And I know that they understand supply and demand. It's just such an emotional thing. And, you know, people, people, I think, have a really hard problem looking at really tough time looking at the problem from a bit higher level because they see, okay, there's a single parcel in my neighborhood. And if we knock down a house where somebody's paying, you know, $800 in rent for that and replace it with something that's, you know, renting four units for 1200 or whatever it is, they're going to be priced out. Yes, they are. But we are adding units to the overall equation, which will only bring down prices. And I don't know if you find out why people can't like while regular, like, smart people can't grasp that like please let me know i mean i know that said like in austin we see a lot of heartache around um naturally affordable um housing which is you know your older apartment complexes especially over off like riverside and pleasant valley um that's some of the like last remaining affordable to regular working people housing in austin it's in sometimes pretty rough shape And so while, you know, we all know that in theory, getting rid of that housing and putting in some high rise will add capacity to the overall market, um, you are taking away, you know, what is some of the last truly affordable housing in downtown Austin. So when it's coming from a community that lives in those apartments and they're saying, you're taking away my home. I'm very sympathetic and I want to make that work when it's coming from a white homeowner who doesn't want apartments next door or down the street or anything like that. I have like zero, zero sympathy for that because you're already on the upper end of the economic spectrum. You're a landowner and then you're going to prevent other people from having a place to live. Like that's just, that's just kind of unexcusable to me. Um, So there's there's two different ways to look at it. And then like what you see in Austin, um, you know, is, you have, you know, people who don't want apartments, who want to preserve their land values, and they're like co-opting this like what is a very, very like kind of working class fight is to protect naturally occurring affordable housing. But they'll co-opt it for themselves to preserve their property values. Like it's just it's a big, big, nasty mess. Yeah. Well, I think I mean, so I go on Twitter sometimes. And like the NIMBYs, the not in my backyard people there that are using that kind of argument, like the argument they'll make is that, oh, if you allow somebody to tear down affordable housing and or to build more density houses. So let's say there's five units there that are affordable and you allow somebody to tear that down. 
uh, and replace it with 12 units. Well, the, the developers are responding to, let's say in the Bay Area, they're responding to the incentives that they're given and the constraints that they're given, which is they can only yep. build up so high, they have to provide a certain number of parking spaces, and they're only given so much land, and they're going to pay a fixed amount of fees no matter how much the units cost. So, you know, I think typically you would see these people being like, well, you know, if you demolish these, like, you know, rent-controlled or or naturally affordable housing, they get replaced by quote-unquote luxury or market things. And, you know, I think you've talked about earlier in this podcast, like how the building development codes are so screwed up uh, and mm-hmm. the zoning codes are so screwed up that of course they are. Like, of course the developers yeah. are doing that because that's just the... Yeah. we. Have, so you can't just fix it by saying... Oh, we're going to upzone everything, or we're going to, you know, we're going to not protect this naturally affordable stuff. You got to fix all fix all the stuff around it. Um, and humorously enough, and I want you to tell me if I'm wrong with this, but I'm in a special sure. Twitter group for San Antonio people, and somebody asked, like, what would be the number one thing you would change about San Antonio? And I said I would remove all minimum parking requirements from the development code. Um, so I'm curious, do you that think that's the it. stupidest thing you've ever heard? No, I think that is absolutely fantastic. You are seeing, um, you know, really progressive cities do that everywhere. There's a big push to do it in Austin. Um, I don't know if you've been to downtown Austin. Well, you said you haven't, but um, you I know, drive through it. <laughs> Just keep okay, going so to Dallas. You do see, <laughs> so you do see, but you know, everything um, that's new in downtown Austin has, you know, what like a 15 story parking podium. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And you know, we're we're building buildings that are supposed to last, what, like 100 plus years. We're not going to be driving cars in 100 plus years. We're already seeing it becoming prohibitively expensive for a vast majority of like people who need them. And, you know, it's just really how much are we going to let personal budgets go to this, you know, depreciating asset is kind of crazy. But I mean, yes, I short answer. Yes, I think removing those is a major step and would go a long way. And I mean, people don't realize that removing these parking minimums will drop prices because those parkings, parking spaces that have to be provided by developers are often adding so much rent costs, so much for sale costs. I mean, it's really kind of bonkers. Yeah. Well, it, it's, you know, I used to live in Southtown here and it's, um, you know, it surprised me how much, and that's kind of a near, uh, what I, I, it was actually a suburban environment in the inner city core. And everybody would talk about it like it's urban. I was like, dude, there's single family homes with driveways and lawns. This is a suburban environment. It's just yeah. historic. And yeah. it just, it just amazed me how much the local kind of landed gentry of like, and I, I don't mean this in the, I'm going to say this in the meanest way possible, I guess. The old white folks there were just like, what do you mean you're taking, you, somebody's going to park in front of my house? And it's like, no, no, you live yeah. in the urban core. This is the way it's supposed to be. Like, get your ass out right. and walk. Like, that's that's what you signed up for. It's not the Dominion. Move out to the Dominion if no. you want that, which is a upscale, upscale, fancy neighborhood here in San Antonio that all the Spurs live in, so... Yeah. Um, well, and like the other thing is like what what makes those people think that they own the public right of way? I mean, that's yeah. kind of where I am like, who told you that? Because they were mistaken. Yeah, I'm so I'm so <laughs> excited for our future millennial overlords to come in and take over. You guys are going to be great. It's just going to be great. I'm ready for Gen Z. I will I will take a Gen Z boss any day. They've got it figured out. They don't take shit. I'm like, just tell me what to do. I will be your, I'll be your weapon. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I've got a Gen Z thread coming up too. But so two crazy things. Right. So let me make sure I have the dates for Gen Z, right? Because my kids are Gen Z. 
Gen Z years. So my kids are... I think are, I just found out my son is Generation Alpha, which is interesting. So Yes. Okay. So here's two, here's two fascinating things about, uh, uh, about Gen Z. Number one, they are the first generation to see their parents as friends, almost exclusively. So I was getting this talk about generations. So my kids were born in 2006, cool. 2009. So they are frankly Gen Z. So they're the first ones to see us because they have Gen X parents a lot of times, right? Like us. So they see, and we, right. treat, we, listen, we value their opinion. We treat them as peers. They've been spoken to as adults ever since they were little kids. So they're the right. first generation to treat, teach, treat their parents like friends. So I'm listening to this, um, listening to this like genera- generationalist, I guess, person who studies generations. And she goes, okay, how many of you have teenagers? I was like, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, teenage kids, yeah, 12 and 16. And she goes, do they raid your closet and wear your clothes? I was like, yes. Well, they they just take my stuff. Like, like it's just like if it fits, they're wearing it. And uh, she's like, that's because they're nice. the first generation to see you as a friend. Like you're a peer, you're a buddy. Cool. It's fascinating. The I second think about thing that is a lot. That makes me really yeah. happy. <laughs> I, I guess so. But what clothes am I gonna wear? Uh, so, so anyway, <laughs> the uh, the second the second thing that they do is. If they don't see the utility in learning something, they will just refuse to do it absolutely. Whereas like in my generation or millennial generation, that was somewhat a minority opinion. This group, like it's almost universal. They're like, I don't need to know 19th century French literature. I'm not studying it. I'm going to get a 71 and pass and barely. And that's just the way it's going to be. None of this matters to my future. Like so, those are the two kind of fascinating Gen Z type things. So, uh, good, good luck with that. I love that. <laughs> well, hopefully, by the time they're in charge, I'm dead. <laughs> so we'll see no, I love that, and and part of me feels a little bit Gen Z sometimes. Like, like we were talking about that. I'm in this um, women's kind of you know financial literacy investment group, and yeah, you know, a lot of us who are moms are talking about well do we start a 529 or do we start a custodial brokerage for our new babies? Because a lot of us are seeing where, you know, our education, it it didn't pencil, you know, the amount of student loans I have for the amount I'm getting paid. I, it could have gone either way. You know, I probably would have been fine had I just not gone to college and like figured it out. And so, you know, that's a big conversation that a lot of us are having is like, well, do we fully fund these 529s or do we assume our kids might decide that it's not a great investment to go to college? And that's just really kind of, it's kind of sad, but I think it's also somewhat realistic, Um, you know, as we're seeing this student loan crisis balloon and balloon and balloon and, you know, stagnated wages, rising housing costs and things like that. Um, So it's really interesting to hear about Gen Z. and, And I kind of like that because, you know, I feel really strongly that, the you know U.S. kind of education system is making workers, not necessarily thinkers. And you know, I got a lot of flack for having that attitude in my own education. Um, so I'm glad to hear I like that about them. <laughs> uh, well, my kids' 529s are fully funded, so we'll see what they do with it. it, it maybe <laughs> no. they'll buy Dad a Lambo. Dad needs a Lambo. Um, so one thing I did want to ask, and then we're coming up on an hour, so I know I got to let you go, but the, um, so how is the world of urban planning thinking about like the evolution of technology, right? So like you had kind of, I think like 1.0 coming along of like the Uber lift to the world. And to some extent, those just kind of supplanted the old taxi scheme and made them more useful. But like, 
Like it seems pretty pretty soon that we're gonna have, you know, s- s- some sort of self driving car. Like you're gonna have um, self driving smart buses. Uh, you know, flying taxis. You know, the quadcopters that can put three people on and fly you someplace. Like those are those are on the horizon. Um, mm-hmm. Flown or not, you're gonna have smart garages as part of that. Like all of this kind of. Uh, more intelligent street infrastructure. Like, how do you guys like think about that in the context of, you know, planning for today and then thinking about it tomorrow? Like, I'm curious, I'm curious how much reality you guys think there is there. Well, it's really interesting because, you know, in the things you just listed, um, a lot of them are assuming people have money for that. Yeah. I mean, I'm working in communities where people can't even, you know, we're getting to the point where gas is just rising and rising and rising. The cost of owning a car is rising and rising. They're having to move further, further out to qualify. So like, you know, um, self-driving cars don't really solve any problems. Like the infrastructure for that is just still, you know, massively expensive for the number of people it serves. So really, a lot of us are just kind of like, yeah, like tech is great and we'll use it where we can. But like, looking to our, you know, to Europe and things like that, and even to Asia, where, you know, they're on the forefront of technology, and they haven't figured out anything better than a train. Um, because a train moves the best, the largest amount of people with the smallest amount of infrastructure investment. So, so we're kind of like, you know, this is exciting. And, you know, a lot of things, you know, micro mobility, I think is really going to change. Um, you know, continue. We're going to see changes related to that. But um, a lot of us, you know, see a self-driving car and like the boring company and like stuff like that as just kind of like a, a dude idea that like isn't really grounded in the reality of how things get done. Because um, mm-hmm. like, I mean, think about it. You're still going to be sitting in traffic in your self-driving car. Um, doesn't really fix that. <laughs> Yeah. So it's it, it, so like I think we're very interested in a way, but I think I think we are also facing a reckoning with the the private vehicles, and I think that we're seeing a little bit of that now. I think if we charge people what they actually owe for gas, if they actually owe for road infrastructure, if we start doing that, we'll see that much more quickly. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's kind of back to the basics in some ways. Yeah. You know, I will say we do look to Asia a lot. Um, we look to Asia. We look to Europe. What people who are really, really experienced in moving people around do and kind of follow their lead. Yeah. Well, it all it all ties together, right? You have to think about the transit infrastructure. You have to think about density of living. Like, like we to go back to like the bus system challenges here, like we've almost, in my opinion, given San Antonio's bus system like almost an impossible job to do, right? It's like, oh, you're supposed to like mm-hmm. give this high density transit thing, uh, but you're supposed to do it in suburban neighborhoods with freeways where cars get, you know, primacy right. on everything. And it's just like, like it, it just kind of blows my mind that we don't think more deeply about that stuff. But then I look at all the vested interests trying to protect their vested interests and it's like, Oh, okay. Well, that all makes sense again. <laughs> I totally dig this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, well, no wonder what no one rides via like, you know, I mean, we make the stops are super hot, you know, they don't have a lot of funding for a lot of the things they need. Um, you know, and like the land use and the transportation are just tied together so heavily um, that's why, you know, I'm working on Project Connect in Austin and that's why it is like 
really such a comprehensive package, the way that bond was written, because it has so much funding for the land use that are adjacent to the new transit that's going in, is like you have to have kind of that symbiotic circular relationship for them both to be successful, the land use and the transit, or it's just going to be a train to nowhere. Um, So again, that's why I think that bond pocket package was like really super innovative, especially when you're talking about, you know, building transit from scratch in a Texas city. Um, So yeah, just really making sure those land use and transit go together. Something we're really missing the boat on in San Antonio. So maybe future politicians will get it. It is. Maybe, maybe. (laughs) Well, when, when I vote for you for mayor, it'll be great. (laughs) <laughs> hey, I'm private sector all the way. I'm, I'm too loud mouth for a public office. So. <laughs> count on it. Count on it. All right, Megan, thank you so much for doing this. It was really yeah, nice to get to know fun. you. And, and, and I hope you had as much fun as I did. Yeah, I did. Keep in touch. Thank you all.